0: Hi, I'm Eddie Portnoy, Academic Advisor and Director of Exhibitions at the Evo Institute for Jewish Research.
1: And I'm Tony Michaels, Professor of American Jewish History at the University of Wisconsin.
2: I'm Jessica Chaffin, and I made these guys both say their bios so you would know our new podcast, The Jewish Bazaar, is legit people still say that? The latest podcast coming to you from Reboot Studios this December. Each week we're going to talk about some of the strangest corners of Jewish history that your rabbi or your father or your grandfather or whoever really would prefer we didn't cover.
0: We'll be talking about everything from wild-eyed Jewish murderers to enraged revolutionaries. Wrestling rabbis to pornographers, and then some.
2: So, subscribe now by searching Reboot Presents The Jewish Bazaar wherever you get your podcasts. Here's episode one of The Jewish Bazaar. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jessica Chaffin, and welcome to the Jewish Bazaar, where me and my two illustrious co-hosts, Mr. Tony Michaels of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, distinguished professor, have I got that right,
1: Tony? That's exactly right.
2: Uh, And Mr. Eddie Portnoy. I love calling you misters, because who would ever dare? (laughs) <laughs> uh mr eddie portnoy from the evo institute in new york uh head of exhibitions and general um michigas i believe is that your title
0: that's accurate. you got a
2: zabar's mug right behind you while we're recording that's, does that come with the job on the first day or
0: you know what I, actually it, it did come with a job it was in the office uh-huh. when i got here there you go eddie do you hold a doctorate or are you merely a mister I do oh. hold a doctorate, but I, 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 try not to tell people. It's, it's doctor, somebody, I, I it are
2: you Dr. Michaels?
0: Yeah, I of am Dr. Michaels. I mean, of course, yeah.
2: Tony is totally the type who'd go through the whole thing and then not do the last piece and not get the doctor. <laughs> am I right, Tony? How long did it take <laughs> you to defend I, I, your thesis or whatever you have to do to become a doctor?
1: I didn't even, I didn't even have to do it. I submitted it. I submitted my thesis, uh, in August, I don't know what year. And then I was a doctor, magically, what suddenly, did, and what a professor. Did, um,
2: you do your thesis on, and Eddie can I ask what you did yours on.
1: I'm just curious.
2: My thesis sure. is
1: my thesis is on uh, the socialist Jews of yesteryear and uh, the Yiddish culture that they built. Uh,
2: so, still sticking to that program, pretty strongly.
0: I thought it was going to be on Jewish big
2: wave surfers, but I guess not. What
1: uh, are there any? <laughs> Uh, you must be thinking of Sean Thompson, the nineteen seventy-eight <laughs> world champion. Was he Jewish? He was, and from South Africa. Great
2: Jewish a- athletes. That story coming next. Great. Not today. That's not today. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, what about you? Uh,
0: my my dissertation was on uh, cartoons of the Yiddish press oh. in Warsaw, oh. New in Warsaw, New York, hmm. in the late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. Was that interesting? Do it. Uh not to most people, but to yeah. me. You found it amusing.
2: I find that comforting in both cases. Uh and in fact, Eddie, what you're, what you wrote your I guess what you wrote your thesis on will somehow eke into or slip into what we were we're gonna talk about today, which is Jewish murderers. I'm gonna guess uh, that there actually, were actually some- you're going to tell us some stories and I'm going to guess that there were some cartoons in some publications at that time. If we've got a, if we've got a murder that lines up with these dates, I don't know.
0: To, to, to be honest, there aren't cartoons, but there are engravings. And the reason the reason there aren't cartoons is because, um, uh, these murders took place in the 1870s. Political
2: cartoons didn't extend to that sort of thing at that time.
0: Well, they, you know, they, they, they didn't exist, uh, in reference to, uh, Crimes as grave as murder at that time. In this
2: community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, okay, I stand corrected again, but isn't that just what this show is about? This show is uh, (laughs) a show where we take a little detour from the usual um, path of Jewish history and culture, and we learn a little bit more about ourselves. Some of it we like, some of it a little less so. I mean, whoever talks about Jewish murderers? No one. They talk about David Berkowitz, but wasn't he adopted... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's, that is what they say. That's my favorite. The ones we'll, the ones Although we'll he, take, he, and the ones we won't take. Oh, David Burton! No, no, he was adopted. He was.
0: He he does look remarkably like his parents. He definitely looks picture. like he
2: was adopted from a Jewish family. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, actually, well, you know, what does twenty three and Me say about I'd David Burton? I would
2: love Berkowitz? to know. I would love to know. Yeah. yeah. So before we get into it, Eddie, I just want to tell people in case they want to dig deeper when the episode is over. The murder we're about to get into is. You also write about it in your book, Bad Rabbi, which is a terrific collection of stories. Um, and, well, I shouldn't say stories; it makes it sound fictional, but blips of Jewish history. And well, why don't you tell people what it is, so that I, so that you,
0: you're the doctor? <laughs> it's uh, stories from mostly from the from the Yiddish press, uh, sort of translated and retold uh, in really. St- small capsules, small digestible capsules.
2: If you like this, you'll love that. And we'll put a link in the episode notes. So Eddie, I think you're going to kick it off for us. Is that right?
0: Okay. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, two Jewish murderers. One of them actually accidental, but still a murder. Uh, I believe these took it's called manslaughter. Place in, uh, that is yep. that is correct. Uh These are two cases that occurred in the 1870s in New York City, Um, and they took place at a time when there weren't a great deal of Jews uh, in the United States. It is a decade before uh, the mass immigration uh, of Jews from Eastern Europe, and so the community is much smaller And as a result, they're perceived. So, differently. what percentage are we talking um, about? So, and how uh, long have they been? Percentage-wise, well, look, Jews have been in the United States since the colonial period, uh, uh, you know, since since you know before there was a country. They the the first Jewish arrivals uh, came in in 1654. Um, but you know what? Maybe maybe we should let Tony, who's who's more expert in these affairs uh give give us like a little brief overview of uh give
2: us a ver- give us of, a very uh, short context uh, if this is relevant to your to your tale Eddie yeah. of what we're talking about because i think obviously these days most of us um associate new york with have a bus having a bustling jewish community and i'm going to guess that at this time the jew was more of a stranger than than they are now but maybe not
1: yeah there was there was the Jewish community, let's say, by the Civil War was pretty small and new. But it was But uh, so let's say in the 1820s, there were only about 4000 Jews oh. or so in the United States. It was pretty small. with But with each decade after that, the number grew pretty substantially so that by the 1870s, there might have been a quarter of a million Jews in the United States. Most of those Jews were from Central Europe, which is to say what we now consider Germany or parts of mm-hmm. Austria, uh, certain parts of France mostly from Central Europe, some from Eastern Europe. And uh, then in the 1870s, the numbers started growing uh, pretty significantly. And most of the people coming were from Eastern Europe, from the Russian empire mostly. And so that by World War One, I, I don't know, there were about two million Jews in the United States. We don't have exact numbers, maybe more than that by World War One. So the 1870s was the beginning of a, of a real large influx of Jews that grew with each decade up to world war one, what percentage of the United States, I don't know, less than 1% at the start of this story, you know, right by the end of, you know, the end of the civil war, it's under one, I think it's under 1%. What does it
2: feel like? What does New York feel like at that time? Just in terms of the Jewish community, meaning Mm -hmm. now, obviously the Jewish community is a very visible and, um, important part of the fabric of New York. I'm going to guess mm-hmm. at that time, it was no different than any other immigrant community where they stuck to their own little enclave and people sort of understood them and sort of didn't understand them. Is that?
1: To some extent, yeah. I mean, first of all, New York was much smaller. So, uh, you know, Harlem was farm country, the Bronx, most of Brooklyn, this is all mm-hmm. rural. Um so most of New York City is the is Manhattan, and then let's say from what we consider today, uh, I don't know the what the 70s and 80s down to the tip of Manhattan is New York City, and Jews are 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 clustering in the Lower East Side, uh, which is the home to the largest Jewish community in the United States. Even at this early point, um, on the on at the time, the Lower East Side was called Klein Deutschland or Little Germany. Most of the residents of the Lower East Side are Germans, not not Jews, you know, Protestants, some Catholics, German speakers. And in that overall German settlement in the Lower East Side or Klein Deutschland, there were Jews, Jews from Central Europe, as I said before, but also a growing number of Yiddish-speaking Eastern European Jews from the Russian Empire. And that community is starting to burgeon. So by the 1890s, It's almost entirely Jewish on the Lower East Side. So if the 1870s, in a way, it's a a real transitional decade from the time in which the number of Jews in New York is small, not insignificant, but still fairly small, to by the end of the decade, it was really large. And and Jews were on the verge of becoming, in the early 20th century, on the verge of becoming the largest immigrant group in New York. The Irish were very big already. The Germans were especially large. In the mid to late 19th century, then come the Jews in really large numbers at the end of the late 19th century, and then Italians okay. uh, in large numbers. So that again, Jews are just a fairly small minority in the 1870s. By 1900, they, you know, increasingly are defining New York's uh, d- defining New York with more and more groups coming okay. as well. Bet, let's get back to the murders.
0: So uh just to Tony's point about uh you know the Jewish uh community in the in the eighteen seventies uh and the increasingly large influx of Jews from Eastern Europe, uh in 1870 you see the, the uh, uh publication of the very first Yiddish okay. newspaper in the United States. Uh and that's immediately followed by um someone else saying, This is a terrible newspaper. I'm gonna make my own. Mm-hmm. So someone else publishes another Yiddish newspaper. Uh, none of these do especially well. Um, you know, the, the really most successful Yiddish newspaper to come out, it comes out in 1874. Um, and that's a weekly called Yiddish Gazette. And, and it uh, that actually goes on to be a, quite a successful paper. Uh, but as far as the rest of the Jews go, they are a, a relatively, in New York, their numbers are increasing, but they're a relatively small and sort of quiet community community. Um, Uh, A lot of peddlers, you know, small merchants, uh, things like this. So um, in uh, December 1875, uh, a woman's body was found in a cornfield in East New York. Uh, East New York is between, um, I think, Brownsville and Howard Beach. And at the time you know as tony said this was all farmland you know only sort of the core of new york city was manhattan and really just most of mostly like lower manhattan um so brooklyn at the time was you know was all farmland uh, a farmhand finds this body in a cornfield uh on december 15th 1875 and it's been slashed in Ooh. the neck there's blood all over the place uh it's you know a gooey gross murder um, and so the farmhead goes to the farmer and tells him that he's found this body the farmer contacts the Brooklyn police, Brooklyn is not yet part of New York City uh, it's its own city and so the police come and investigate they find a knife nearby and they bring the body into the Brooklyn morgue
2: hmm.
0: uh, and they put out word in Brooklyn that a body was found and people, if people have someone missing, they should come to the morgue and see if they can identify this body, see if it's one of their relatives. And, you know, a few dozen people come in and no one's able to identify the body. And so the police conclude, well, you know, maybe she came from New York, meaning, you know, Manhattan. So they, um, Put an advertisement in uh, a newspaper uh, for a, you know, describing this woman, what she's wearing, when where she was found, and that she's she's uh, no longer alive. Now, at the same time, uh, there's a family that lives on Bayard Street on the Lower East Side, uh, named Rubenstein, and they had a woman who worked for them uh, named Sarah Alexander. Uh, Sarah was also a relative of theirs, uh, but a more recently arrived and poor immigrant. And she sort of worked uh, kind of as a maid in their house. Uh, and one of the things she did was she um, uh, helped nurse uh, her cousin, Pesach Rubenstein, back to health when he had consumption.
2: What a great Ellis Island name, by the way, Sarah Alexander.
0: <laughs> she, right. It's well, she actually, re- names didn't get changed at Ellis Island.
2: Well, um, she didn't come here, it, named Sarah Alexander.
0: No, she didn't. But um, but also, uh, they she would have come into Castle okay. Garden, which was the place on, in Lower Manhattan where you before Ellis Island became uh, the you know the stopping off point okay. for immigrants. But yes, it, it's 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 yeah. a changed name. Uh, from what yeah. I don't know. It's
2: sexy. Though. Um, so she was yeah. nursing her cousin Pesach so, pa- Passover Rubenstein back to help.
0: Passover <laughs> yeah. Rubenstein. Not a, no longer such a popular name, but you know, once a popular common name among among the Jews. So uh as it happened, she hadn't shown up at work for a few days. And in fact, her brother, John Alexander, had showed up at the Rubenstein's house and asked if they had seen Sarah because she didn't she didn't come home. So they said no, and they also said it was weird that they she didn't, hadn't shown up for work. So uh The father uh, of the family puts an ad in the newspaper describing, you know, saying saying girl missing, describing Sarah Alexander and the clothes she typically wore. When he went and bought a copy of that newspaper that he placed the ad in, he noticed another ad on the same page that had been put in by the Brooklyn police that described virtually the same Mm. person. So yes, very dark day for the uh, for the Alexanders and the Rubensteins. So he contacted the police who this was in Manhattan, who then contacted the Brooklyn police officers from the Brooklyn police department, came to the Rubenstein home and began interviewing the family. Uh, They told him they told the police that the last time they saw Sarah was on a Sunday. Uh, she um, had helped them prepare to go for a wedding, to go to a wedding. Uh, and then she left the house and never returned. Uh, and they, you know, they just never saw her again. And the, you know, the following days they put ads in the newspapers. So when um, the police were there, they said, is there anyone else we should be interviewing? And they said, well, maybe you should interview Pesach. <laughs> But he's in shul. You know, he'll he'll probably be home pretty soon. Not long thereafter, Pesach comes home. He's very surprised to see the police there. They start interviewing him about Sarah. One of the things he says, and he doesn't create any suspicion uh, about himself in any way, but one of the things he says is that, you know, it's weird. I had a dream that Sarah was abducted and uh, found in a field somewhere Mm -hmm. and so the police are kind of like oh that's interesting will you come to the morgue in brooklyn and identify the body and he's obviously been very close to her she nursed him back to health they spent a lot of time together so when they ask him if he'll accompany them to go to the morgue he freaks out starts screaming says absolutely not i will not go to the morgue They say, you're coming to the morgue. And they physically drag him out of the house and bring him to the morgue in Brooklyn. Uh, When they get there, they surround this table that has her body on it. It's covered up by a sheet. When they lift the sheet and he sees her face, he begins screaming hysterically, jumping up and down. They immediately arrest him. Uh, What they find when they begin to invest in their investigation and uh, you know, at this time there's no fingerprinting forensics is, you know, very primitive. Uh, But what they do find is that the mud on his boots uh, matches the mud on her clothes. Mm. And this is thought to be the, you know, the uh, uh, mud from the field in Brooklyn. Uh, they also see that his um, uh, his clothing is flecked with a kind of brown, with brown spots, some kind of dried liquid that they think to be blood. Uh, and when they ask him about it, he says, oh, that's blood from the fish market. Uh, they also take his boots to the field in Brooklyn and keep in mind it's December, so the ground is frozen and... They met, they're able to match his boot to footprints in in the um, field in Brooklyn. That's really so interesting. They build, that's they actually, quite a
2: case. I mean, again, talking Lorenz, so they, like they, this is very good police work, actually.
0: Yes. So they 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 build a very reasonable mm-hmm. case. It's you know it's all circumstantial, but that's all that's available. They interview a variety of people. Uh, they find, um, you know, as I said, they found the knife. Uh, next to her body in the field, uh, they discover that that knife is a knife that's made with three rivets. Apparently, most knives at the time were made with two rivets, and so they find the knife maker in New York City that makes in Manhattan that makes the three the three rivet knives. And the they interview the, the girl who works at the shop, and she fingers Pesach Rubinstein as having purchased a knife a knife from them. Um, additionally, they, uh, they find, uh, the, um, one of the streetcar drivers that brought them to the ferry. And he points out Pesach Rubenstein as being a, um, a swarthy Polish Jew. Hmm. Uh, the best kind Right, who was with this woman in particular but, and but why yet he did why, remember
2: them. Why did he remember them? Yeah.
0: Why did he remember them? He remembered them because he said the woman wasn't wearing a hat. Oh. Which apparently nice was unusual. This is a this time, time This is a time when people wore hats. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't Andy wearing could see a hat. Her face.
2: It, yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so um, you know, they they the police built this, you know, built this case against Rubenstein. Uh, Rubenstein's family, uh, got one of the top lawyers, one of the top defense lawyers in New York city to defend him. They had that
2: kind of money. Uh,
0: they all, they had the decent money. and Also, apparently, apparently, yeah. apparently, yes, their friends and parts of the community mm-hmm. raised money in order to support, uh, in order to support, uh, Rubenstein's, uh, case and they, um, at the trial, they, the family and the defense brought in a number of witnesses that could supposedly place Rubenstein in other places, in, in other Ah. locations. Uh, uh, unfortunately none of these worked out. There was always someone else, uh, like the prosecution basically took it apart. Um, you know, one one person said that you know, I saw him in Shull on the day that that you know, the body, you know, that he could have been, he was supposed to be murdering this woman in East New York, you know, and someone else said, you know, you know, no, I, I, you know, I saw him in the market, right, and he couldn't have been. They overdid it.
2: He couldn't have been in thirteen places at once,
0: right? They, you know, they, 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 they totally, you know, you know, they screwed it up. They, they even brought in someone who allegedly claimed that someone else did it. Um, but that person couldn't keep his story straight either. Uh, and so as a result, um the and I also have to add that the, the trial took place in Brooklyn because that's where the body and the, was found and that's where the murder took place. Uh, and it was an enormously popular trial. Virtually well, every newspaper in New York City wrote you know this was front page news on every in every New York City newspaper. Um, additionally, people lined up to get into the trial just as, you know, viewers. It was, you know, it was a popular what did they, venue what did for, enter- for entertainment. call this trial?
2: And was it the subject of like pamphlets and serials at that time?
0: Yes. Right. So that, that comes after okay. the trial when, so, so Re- Rubenstein and the trial t- takes place in, um, uh, in March, uh, 1876. It lasts about 10 days. Uh, he's found guilty uh, when he's when he's pronounced guilty, he stands up. Uh, and one of the reasons that. Um, or one of the one of the sort of excuses he gave or the, and that his his some of his witnesses gave was that Pesach Rubenstein is too religious to have committed a mm-hmm. murder. He's an extremely mm-hmm. devout man, and there's no way that he would have ever done this. Uh, so at, when he's but he, he's. Uh, pronounced guilty, he stands up and he from behind his ears he unfurls his oh. payas. He has a very long payas. He unfurls them and he says, Do you see these? These would prevent me from committing any crime. I'm innocent. Wow. And with that, he's carted off to prison. Uh, the Raymond Street, the Raymond Street jail in Brooklyn, which is a notoriously horrible, uh, horrible jail with you know, rats and mold and it's, it's generally disgusting. Uh, and he sent he's sentenced can to can I
2: ask, do we know anything about, <clears throat> um, him meaning like, did he have a job or was he just a professional shul goer? Did this illness, no, right. I don't know how old he was, but did this illness, you know, you always hear the stories of he was a weirdo. He tortured a cat. He did this, he did that. I know we're going to know more soon about the relationship right. between him and Sarah Alexander, but I'm just really curious because right. that's such so, a psycho thing to do to stand up in front of the courtroom and say, to pronounce himself in that way is such a like sociopathic or psychopathic thing to do.
0: Right. Right. He so, also okay. could have been so caught up when, in the when,
2: fervor of the community. You know, yeah. this is really dramatic. The, the trial and the community right. supporting him and he's a celebrity.
0: Right. Well, uh, a, yes, a to, notorious a
2: celebrity, but he yes. is the center of everyone's uh, of the gossip at the, in this moment of New York and of the community. Yeah.
0: Right, and right. So what 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 the prosecution is able to to bring out is Rubenstein's motive. So it turns out that Sarah Alexander was pregnant, ah. and. And wow. Pesach Alexander or I'm sorry, Pesach Rubinstein had found out that his wife was on her way over to New York from Poland. Oh. So the fact that he got his cousin pregnant when his wife was in, let's say imminently according to 1876 terms, which means, you know, in a Sometime
2: weeks, in the next nine months, uh, she, she's going to be here. Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, when, when she was arriving, uh, you know, he felt that this was a situation that he had to take care of. Now, um, you know, abortion at the time was illegal. That was one route that could have been taken. Um, but he didn't take that I think that his, it, it looks like his first... He, he apparently didn't speak to her. His first move was to murder her, which so is insane. So she told
2: him that she was pregnant and then he lured her to this cornfield and violently murdered her?
0: Yes. Yes.
2: Huh.
0: Yeah. And, and then flashed his pay as say Where court.
2: were his payas then, Tony?
0: Uh, <laughs> I under a very
2: a... furry hat, right. I guess. It was
0: cold. Under, under, yeah. under, a, under a hat. Did not, yeah. Un, yeah. yeah. It's uh, so it's, you know, so for the that Jewish community, fun, this is a very um, upsetting
2: animated show or whatever. If you think of it like someone who's about to do something terrible and then their pay is uh, animate and come to life and become like ropes holding their arms back before they can strangle somebody. You know, if I was I, an I animator, that that'd be Big- kind of fun. I,
0: I could I could see that in Big Mouth. That could, a that could be a great show, character.
2: which people should watch.
0: They should absolutely yeah, watch it. It's fantastic. I, 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 happen, uh, I happen to be um, the voice
2: of, uh, as you know, of Shannon uh, Glazer, the mother of Jesse Glazer, one of the main characters. I yes. also play a dirty hotel pillow and a few and, a few, <laughs> and a few other things. Uh, but yes, it's I, I a love great that. show. I love, I love that, that, that show. I love that show. I'm very proud it's a great to be show. part of that I show. I have seen it. Your great. son should watch so, it, Tony. Uh, Your kids would love it. How well, yeah.
0: Yes, actually, you know what? My ki- my kids loved it. Your kids yeah, would also love it. It's Just funny as could be
2: and dirty. You and... could.
0: It's a family well, show. It, I've seen Captain Underpants.
2: Fam- no, <laughs> this is it's not very the same. Different. Yeah, but anyway, we digress. This isn't a Netflix commercial. This is. Um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a piece of so he goes. Thing so anyway, he
2: I... declares he's not guilty. Then what? I mean, he's but the court has right. already put him away. He, he,
0: he, right. They, right. He's he's guilty. And, you know, there, there's a motive. He's guilty. It's, but there were, you know, do we know anything about, else,
2: though, about his life up until then? Or this is just a desperate so he, man who felt cornered he, and he had, this is been, what he did?
0: He had been in the country for about three years. Uh, he, his family, his parents, or it was actually his father and his stepmother. Uh, and uh, I believe some of his brothers and sisters had come before him. Uh, and they probably suggested that he come as well because there were there was opportunity there. And he worked as um, a kind of jewelry peddler, uh, you know, sort of on the street peddling jewelry to people. Uh, I don't know how successful he was, but he obviously wasn't in good health. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how long it took for him to- Did he have um,
2: consumption or something like that? Or was he just- He a- had, he,
0: yes, he, he had, he, oh, he had right. consumption. And, you know, as I said, Sarah Alexander was hired to nurse him back to health. Uh, she did an excellent job. Um, you know, she nursed him back to, to health so well that he he managed to get her pregnant. So um, he's, as I said, found guilty, put in jail. He's sentenced to death, sentenced to hang. Um, now, in the meantime, Every New York City newspaper is writing about this, and one of the amazing things that um, has to do with this case is that I found out I had never heard of this case before, and uh, at the time I came across it, I was in graduate school and I had read you know thousands of pages of texts on American Jewish history. I, you know, had sat in hundreds of hours of classes. I, this is something, this seemed important, and yet I'd never right. heard of it. So I went to the American Jewish history section of the library and started pulling books off shelves, looking in the indexes for Pesach Rubinstein. And I pulled about 40 or 50 books off the shelves, and I found Pesach Rubinstein in three books. In one book, there was two, sentence, two sentences written about him. In another book, there was a paragraph and in a third book, which is a history of the Jews of Brownsville, Brooklyn, by Alter Lonsman, uh, there was about a page and a half. And that was it. And I was sort of startled because I was finding so much material in the, Amer- in the New York City press about it. So at the time, and I want to say this is probably about 2005, 2004, 2005, a new database had come online of uh, American historical newspapers from... Uh, the 17th century to 1922, which is when at the time copyright ended It ended, and it allowed them to put all of these digitized newspapers online. And it was searchable. So I went to this database, I put in Pesach Rubenstein and got 999 hits, which was the absolute total you could get. And what I discover was that uh, not only did every New York City newspaper write about this, but this was written about in virtually every single newspaper in the United States, it was almost as if it was syndicated. It was the story about the the Jew murderer, um, or the 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 murdered Jewess, the Hebrew murderer, like the Hebrew murderer of East New York. Uh, this was in this was everywhere, and so in the wake of the trial, as you said, um, there were a number of pamphlets printed. Now, uh, murder pamphlets is a type of uh, literature. Uh, very fascinating kind of uh, uh, type of American literature that uh, begins appearing in the 19th century. They're sort of sensationalistic, often illustrated pamphlets about uh, popular murders that took place in the U.S. Now, typically for most cases, um, you'd have one, maybe two pamphlets created for, you know, each murder. For Pesach Rubinstein uh, for the Pesach Rubinstein murder trial, uh, you had four pamphlets created, and they're all illustrated. Um, you know him, you know, perpetrating the murder, uh, in 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 you know in the trial, praying in prison. Uh, you know, they talk about how he wears tefillin and a talis, and they illustrate this. And what's amazing is this is probably the first time that a popular American audience is seeing you know what Tefillin is. Yeah, they're really is, dramatic. Or, uh, these I've seen them. Yeah. 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 They're they're amazing. And so the the because of Rubinstein's you know religious sensibilities uh, and because he's an immigrant, this becomes a you know a, sort of a Jewish affair. Uh, you know, really up until this tri- time, um, you know, Jews aren't perceived as you know, murderers as threatening. They're not, you know, the, the, the jails aren't full of Jews. Um, you know, they're, they're seen as, you know, reasonably upstanding citizens. And th- that's also the way they try to portray themselves. So the Pesach Rubinstein trial comes along and, you know, sort of destroys this image. You know, in addition, you know, the, the trial was so popular that in addition to all of these pamphlets and newspaper articles that were printed, um, the entire trial transcript was published as a book in the wake of the trial. Were you
2: able to get your hands on that book ever?
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Was it published by
2: a Jewish press or a non-Jewish press?
0: No, 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 It was published. It was published by. Interesting
2: though, because this is kind of like, this is the whole point of what we're talking about, which is that the Jewish press aren't covering this. Or I'd be curious how they're so, covering this because what, what, what yes. except
1: well, there's a big exception there, I think. And how, right? Exactly, what is that's, their
2: version of what's happening? Because that's the whole point is like, what do we want to believe about ourselves? And what one is a fact of a girl was murdered and it happened within right. this community, and then there's this sensationalization right. of in some ways for this to be the first kind of big mainstream Jewish murder trial is interestingly assimilationist in a strange way because it's like murder is such hot copy at this time that it's like we're sort of, you're sort of being brought into the mainstream in a way even though there's all these strange crazy images and I'm curious in that writing a if it's either anti-semitic or I don't know how you would call that exactly but like otherizing or or right. or it, there's a fe- fetishism built- around it and how are the jews talking about it cuz obviously the community did everything they could to try and get this guy off in, including some sloppy antics but
1: <laughs> well i think the answer depends on which language the newspaper is mm-hmm. published in uh, right that's exactly that's
0: exactly right the so, english so- press
1: covered it one way and yiddish the yiddish so press another you've read
2: some of this stuff as well tony no,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's
0: he's he has <laughs> with it. But
2: you understand the, but you obviously uh, no, know a lot about the to- I, the context of the time that we're speaking about. So
1: yeah, I think generally uh generally there was a divide between what England the, the um what ran in the English press and what English speaking Jews wanted to portray to the larger public and what uh, Yiddish speaking Jews said to themselves. And the simple reason is because the the simple reason for this difference is that uh, anyone can read an English, English Jewish newspaper. The whole Gentile world can read it. So, you know, the whole world is watching and um, Americanized English-speaking Jews are sensitive to that. It doesn't pertain just to newspaper coverage. It, 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 uh, the same divide held true for, let's say, the vaudeville stage where performances that Yiddish-speaking immigrants or their children loved were seen as disreputable, by English-speaking Americans, because again, they were more they were more vulnerable to the opinions of Gentiles. Mm. So this this holds true from Pesach Rubenstein down for decades. There's always uh, often a, a big divide between what Yiddish speakers said among themselves and what English-speaking Jews said.
0: Right, and uh, you know, to Tony's point, you know the the you know the general press, the general English English language press, you know, some of which is more sensationalistic. Than others, um, you know, reports what they see in the trial. Uh, The Yiddish press at the time, which is very much a nascent press, there there aren't a lot of Yiddish newspapers, uh, they reported in Yiddish as they see it. And they see it as, you know, this guy's a murderer, it's terrible. Uh, but it's all, and they, and they report in the trial as, you know, similarly in a lot of ways to the English language press, but because it's in Yiddish, they're not, you know, as Tony said, they're not, they don't have to be embarrassed about it because ultimately the Yiddish press is a private conversation among Jews. You know, it's you know, they, they no one else can read it. Now, interestingly, there's a, a, a English language Jewish press and they're humiliated mm-hmm. by all of this. They barely write anything about it. And one of the one of the English language newspapers is run by the reform movement, and one of the things they comment is a dig at the orthodox. They say, uh, you know, being orthodox was not an impediment to uh, Rubinstein being a criminal. Uh, but they they write virtually nothing about the trial, you know, especially in light in comparison to you know the rest yeah. of the press. They they you know act like ostriches. They just put their heads in the sand. So, I
1: think yeah. that's the. I just Please. want to clarify something. You know, it's not, uh, Eddie's not trying to get the impression that Yiddish-speaking immigrants were indifferent to the moral implications of the murder. It's just oh, no. that they, they were open to talking about it because, as Eddie said, it's a family conversation. It's a private one where the respectable um, middle-class English-speaking newspapers viewed it as such an embarrassment they didn't even want to talk about it. Um, but that inter- that dig, it, the Orthodox Jews is important. Because what reformed Jews were saying at the time in reform was just really solidifying in the 1870s. What they were saying is Jewish law is Jewish law does not instill morality. Jewish law, all Jewish law is is a series of outdated uh, strictures, uh, but it doesn't make one a better person. And and they were saying that on part also to explain it's a critique of orthodoxy, but it's also justification for getting rid of, of the observance of Jewish law, because they drew a separation, reformed Jews drew a separation or a distinction between morality and ethics and in and legal, in and legal, and, and the law, uh, rituals, legal um, minutiae of what you should eat and how you should, you know, what kind of clothes you should wear and all that stuff. They said, look, orthodox Jews are obsessed with these sorts of minutiae, but it doesn't make them better pers- people. Um, and here's Pesach Rubinstein, perfect evidence of that. Here's a man with pais, he prays all the time. Uh, and what does he do? He commits a murder. A reformed Jew wouldn't do that. So
2: isn't it interesting? I mean, of course, well, first of all, that's just like any news coverage is what suits your community and the paper it represents, kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. not to be too narrow about that. But particularly when we're talking about these kind of small press situations. Um but isn't it interesting that it then takes so much digging on Eddie's part? I'm just curious, when we talk about Jewish identity and we talk about, uh, there's something, you know, I don't want to, de- to derail too much, but let's say the concept of the mensch, which is sort of central to Jewish culture, this idea of a good Jewish man or a good man, a good Jewish boy. It's,
0: good, it's a good person. Um, it's a, Men- decent De- a decent person. A decent
2: person. And that, that is a big th- you know, there's the original myth, which is the chosen people, and then there's the mensch. And these are big um cornerstones of of Jewish culture and life, right? Is that fair to say? Uh at least philosophically. Yeah. And so this stuff just doesn't square with that which is why we're talking about it today. Um, And I mean, any society, nobody loves them. People don't, you know, no one's proud of a murderer, but you, (laughs) sometimes it is more central to the narrative though of some religions where you need the bad in order to highlight the good kind of thing. And we tend to not focus on the bad. We tend to focus on being better and better and better and righteous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so it's interesting that, Like, who wrote the books that you were reading? The History of the Jews of Brownsville. You know, that it's like a little mention here, a little mention there. And I'm curious, I know, I think you have one more tale for us, um, but that maybe we can do an abridged version of. Um, Just as a, I'm just curious, actually, you don't even have to tell the whole story. I'm just curious if there are other um, mm, psychopaths, sorry, other murderers who pop up throughout the next what whatever, one hundred and twenty-five years, or maybe earlier in Jewish history, but where they we didn't know about them, and then they had to be sort of unearthed. But they were important at the time. But then the culture sort of decides to close the Pandora's box on them because they don't jibe with the narrative. Does that make sense?
0: Right. So in the wake of the Rubenstein trial, you have, and incidentally, I just wanted to, you know, create some closure by saying that he was he was not, in fact hanged uh he uh starved himself to death in uh. prison denying the hangman his uh how long did that work. how he long did that creating... take uh not that about a week not that long uh he was kind of a messy to refuse to bathe he only
2: he it took he, him a week you know, to starve to eat. death
0: well it was i think he was very sickly i i, I it was this but this is what the, this is these were the reports in the papers um not but in the too, wake of the trial so he used
2: I, all the energy he had to murder her and then he and then he took to, his
0: face so, to something catch. like that he, yeah. you know But he, the trial took of, its toll on of, an already poorly yeah, it, person. It did. Yeah. Yes. So uh in the wake of the trial you know as i said they, there there were these you know four murder pamphlets published the entire trial transcript was published uh as a book you know for popular consumption uh in the, in addition uh, I found in a, in an anthology of popular songs from the 1870s listed a song called My Name is Pesach Rubinstein um you know unfortunately <laughs> there's no music or lyrics but you know that the fact that there was a popular song of that name is just astonishing yeah. additionally uh Yiddish papers of the period report that um the amount of anti-Semitism in general increased fairly significantly and Jews were chased down the street, uh, by kids throwing rocks and screaming Rubenstein, 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 the name Rubenstein became sort of a fill in Mm -hmm. for Jew. Uh, you know, it was, you know, it it was, it, it made life really difficult. Amazingly also in, uh, the autobiography of, uh, Ab Khan who was the editor of the Jewish Daily Forward which would be which was the largest Yiddish daily newspaper in history uh, he came to the United States uh, in 1881 he wrote that when he arrived in the country everyone on the lower east side was talking about the Pesach Rubinstein trial that's 5 years after the Pesach Rubinstein wow. trial so it was something that deeply deeply affected the Jewish community uh, in in really significant ways, um, and the fact that historians ignored this for so long uh, is, you know, to me it's an, it's an indictment of American Jewish history to you know in this respect uh, for having ignored this because it was really the most significant interface uh, of Jews in American media in the history of the country up until that point. Uh,
1: well, that- but here's the thing: What happens in the following decades is that Jews are increasingly in the spotlight as criminals and even murderers. Yes, also. True. And, and and sometimes those murder, uh, the accusations of murder are true, and other times they're completely fabricated. Um, and this really weighs on Jews. So, is this for instance, like blood libel There. Well, it's a combination of so. So first of all, um, in 1913, Leo Frank. A Jewish right. factory manager in Atlanta, Georgia, is falsely accused of murder and rape, and then he's lynched. Uh, the lynching is, dis- is very serious. It helps the whole scandal around it. It uh, leads directly to the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, which had been dormant. Uh, it leads directly to the creation of the Anti-Defamation League. Jews realize that they need to start an organization to defend the good name of Jews. Um, And uh, half of half of George's or half of the Jews of Atlanta leave the city permanently Mm. after that. I mean, that's that's the kind of scare there is around the lynching. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So That's 1913. Then there's the blood libel accusation against Jews in 1928. That's in upstate New York when a four four year old girl wanders into uh, the forest, wanders into the woods, disappears in the town, blames the Jews for killing her and using her blood. Uh, for ritualistic purposes. Now, this is an old accusation, the blood libels, an old accusation in Europe. Uh, by this time, it spread into the Middle East. Uh, but now, in the 1920s, it apparently had spread to the United States. Now, eventually, the girl was found, uh, and the and the scandal died down. But still, it was yet another, another example of a false murder charge against Jews. So those were false. On the other hand, there were... Uh, Jews, uh, gangsters, for, insta- for instance, were of course killing people all the time. Murder Incorporated also came into existence. Uh, I mean, this gang in Brownsville, Brooklyn, very near to where, Pesach, where very near to Pesach, where uh, Pesach Rubenstein committed the murder, is now a Jewish ghetto, Brownsville, and uh, it's it's one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. And w- there was a gang dubbed. Murder Incorporated, which specialized in killing people. I mean, upward of a thousand people were killed by Jewish gangsters in this gang uh, by 1941. And, and they were, so were they for hire? Organized crime. They were for so hire. They, could, were contract, anyone, they were, contra, they were contract Jewish anyone or not Jewish. Anyone could hire their contract yeah, then sometimes they worked with Italian gangsters well, too. Well, isn't right. but yeah, so I wonder is that, wasn't
2: that um, Suge Knight's company, Murder Incorporated? I can't or before Death Row, I can't remember. Or one of the albums is called Murder Inc. So, Possibly um, Murder I'm Inc. curious if they Murder knew Inc. that the connection to that, or if they just that was their own idea. It, I think
0: it, I think Murder Inc. is a tattoo show.
2: No, I INC, <laughs> Eddie, INC.
1: It, it 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 Murder Inc. is part of American popular culture. In nineteen sixty there's a movie called Murder Incorporated, but in that uh starring Peter Falk and some others. But if as I recall, J- Jewish references were taken out of the movie,
0: so you didn't know it was a Jewish gang.
1: Right. So and, and, and,
0: and Jewish historians don't address these things until the nineteen eighties. And even when they do, uh the um robert rockaway who wrote the book uh um uh, but he was good to his mother uh, history of jewish gangsters in america told me that um when he pul- wrote that book uh, the heads of virtually every jewish major jewish organization in the united states came to him and asked him not to publish the book and he also claims that uh he was denied promotions in his department uh you know because he had pu- published this sort of you know history of jewish gangsters um, so, you know, American Jewish history historians, you know, to a large degree and for a long time, try to, uh, ignore this, this aspect of Jewish life.
1: There, there's another scandal even before the Berkowitzes, and yes, that's that's, true. The, that's the scandal of Leopold and Loeb, uh, two right. Jewish kids from Chicago who killed another Jewish kid. And this was, um, became a very famous trial. Clarence Darrow defended them. Uh, They were found guilty. Future Supreme Court
0: Justice Clarence
2: Darrow, right? Was he a Supreme Court Justice? Or he was just a famous defense Uh,
0: attorney? Famous. I think
1: he's just a famous defense lawyer. But one
0: of them. He was related to Upton Sinclair. St. Clair. (laughs) Upton St. Clair. (laughs) We'll cut that. We'll also cut Um, the
2: Murder Inc. thing I said because I looked it up and it's a different company altogether. But anyway, go on, Tony.
1: But. Anyway, so Leopold and Loeb were all over the, the news for this, this really, uh, uh v- carried out this vicious neighbor, uh, murder of a neighbor. And, um, they were quite, oh, well, quite brazen about it. Um, it was totally, and they, these weren't kids from the Jewish ghetto. These were actually wealthy Jewish kids of German Jewish background. Um, and, uh, what were the circumstances? And,
2: uh, what were the circumstances of the murder?
1: Circumstances that these two, these two guys, these two friends, I think they're about 18, 19, uh, who were apparently very good students, highly intelligent. Possibly, it seems they had a romantic relationship, yeah. and uh, had it in their heads uh, that they were they were fascinated by their understanding of Nietzsche and his notion of the Superman, wow. who stands above the law and outside mm-hmm. the law. So they thought, well, we're brilliant, we're geniuses. What if you like to kill somebody? What it feel like to kill somebody? So that's those were the, the circumstances, and they went to, went to jail. One, again, one was killed in prison by a, a fellow prisoner. Uh, the other was eventually released, I think, in the late nineteen fifties. Totally humiliating. But again, going back to the Jewish communal perspective, this was this was scandalous and humiliating. And
2: so then, I guess David Berkowitz is the next most. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's people in between, but. That's the next big blip where people have to deal Probably. with the sensationalism of this, of a trial and it hitting the mainstream media, basically. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, um, not only that, it's, it's, a, you know, Son of Sam is a major, major trial. Like it's, you know, the, 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 this was, you know, that summer. But it's so
2: interesting that the ADL asked, um, that the guy who wrote the, but he was good to his mother. Is that what it's called? Which is, which Rock is such a right. great yeah. title for a book, um, <laughs> that they were like, "Could you not?" Well, you know, the, you know, the, you know. The, On the other hand, yeah, how there, big, there, there, You know, you get it. It's like the community is so small. Why draw attention? We don't. Why are we going to vilify ourselves? Uh, I mean, this is the nature of PR, essentially. It, it, yeah.
1: It's right. not just. It's not just that the community was small. It's that the anti-Semitism in this country became very serious. By the 1920s, even more so in the 30s into the 40s, and so Jews were vulnerable. They not they just felt vulnerable. Yes, why well,
2: add to that? But uh, I add, but I would think the ADL yeah. would say that we're always just one bad case or one bad story away from that same vulnerability. Um, and you know, not to get too heavy, and we don't. And I don't want to get into this, but we've certainly seen that in the last couple of years, if not months. Um, Mm -hmm. that the scales can tip quickly so as much as Mm -hmm. we want to talk about the identity politics of it i mean it's all of these things but this idea that it doesn't really um square with the basic values of be of jewish religion and culture and it's also a very dangerous thing to potentially open yourself up to I'm curious how the mm-hmm. New York Jewish community reacted to Berkowitz if and son of son of Sam if you guys know anything about that but um, we should also wrap it up soon guys because it's getting to be that time.
0: All right I mean you know I think you know in the end the the, the Jewish position is always one of, uh, of precariousness. you know one trial, one thing like this that reflects poorly on the Jewish community. Um, you know, history sort of shows that it could all come crumbling down. Right. And quickly. this
2: shitty um inverse of that being that you can be good and good and good and a great contributor to society. And in some quadrants of this world, there's always somebody looking to say, see, I told you that they I told you that they killed babies. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, that's a happy note to end on. <laughs> I,
1: I'll give you a happy note. I haven't killed anybody.
0: Never done it. Not not today, anyways. Not today, no. But that is the, re- the thing
2: it. with the blood libel thing. It always resurfaces. I mean, obviously, you know, and it's tied. Oh, yeah. It's called different things, and it's tied into different things, and it's, you know, they repackage it, and they repurpose it, and whatever it is, but it's... It's always just the one bad. I mean, it goes for everything in in life. But the one bad deed is the thing that people want to remember you for, not the or that want to associate. Sure, it with, of course. Not the uh, which shows the the predisposition predisposition to believe ill of a group of people or a person. It happens individually too, obviously. You know, but there we are.
0: Well, I I be- I, I think ill of everyone.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, extra so, consistent. Yeah, um, guys, this was really fascinating for me, anyway. If the, if we, if there's even six people still listening, I mean, God bless them. <laughs> 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 but really, it is it is fascinating because it's ultimately about reflection, or I, I don't want to say self reflection because it makes it seem too individual, but how a community chooses or or doesn't choose to hold a mirror up to itself Mm. and if you're interested in more um fascinating snippets from jewish culture and history i definitely recommend eddie's book which eddie where can people get that and what and tell them what it's called and where they can get it
0: Uh, the book is called uh bad rod bad rabbi and other strange but true stories from the yiddish press oh look at that tony's got a copy wow i'm so impressed uh it is available from Stanford University, University Press's website or bookshop.org, is it? Uh, or, you know, Amazon.
2: We'll put a link in the um, episode notes so people can get the book. Um, but it's a terrific book and a great read and is, is very Thank much you. what we're doing here, which is the um, looking at the outliers. And what does that say about us?
1: strange but true aspects of Jewish history.
2: There you go. True. Um, Guys, this has been absolutely delightful. I look forward to our next meeting. I'm Jessica Chaffin saying nothing but goodbye to Tony (laughs) Michaels, Dr. Tony Michaels and Dr. Eddie Porter. Thank you.